With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. From climate change to energy and environmental matters, you're listening to Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed and Happy New Year, the first program of 2024. And I have it jam-packed today. I have clip after clip after clip. I've got some uh, anniversary clips from 31, well, I guess 30 years ago exactly, from Rush Limbaugh, the television show. I also have some clips of me on uh, Fox News from last week. And tomorrow I'll have my award show. I did an award segment on Fox where I got to wear my uh, my crushed velvet uh, smoking jacket and present awards to the biggest climate hypocrites of the year. That'll be coming tomorrow on the second day of the new year. Uh, but welcome to the show. Uh, we are now in 2024 and here in America, where I reside, is the crazy, crazy election year now going. We're faced coming up now on the New Hampshire primary, the Iowa caucuses first, the whole presidential primary. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, facing multiple uh, federal imprisonment charges, state imprisonment charges as the deep state goes after him and we devolve into a banana republic. So there'll be lots of nonsense coming up on the show, a lot of unleashing as the political presidential campaign takes over. Okay, well, rather than give you sort of a recap of what's going on in the news, today I'm going to go right into stuff. First of all, uh, Rush Limbaugh's anniversary of his death, it's been two years now, coming up on that. And I was going through and I found, I started my career with Rush Limbaugh, the television show. And I was his man in Washington. And I found some clips. So I was just going to have some fun and play you a couple of the clips from his Rush Limbaugh, the TV show, Back, I started in the fall of summer, actually, 1992. He he premiered in September from stuff I had filmed too over, over the summer. But this actually, these clips are from January 2000, uh, 1993. So that's exactly, actually 31 years ago. It tells you I'm not even adjusted to the fact that it's 2024. 31 years ago this month were these clips. So I wanted to go ahead and play this for you. This is clip one. This is my segment on Rush Limbaugh's television show, probably the first one of 1993. This is dealing with Bill Clinton, Al Gore's inauguration. And I attended one of the inaugural balls. So let's take a look. He called me Our Man in Washington, and you'll see me. They even put a blue screen over my face so they could keep my anonymity. I wore the hat and trench coat, although in this one, I just have the trench coat, but you'll see the hat in the next one. I wore the hat and trench coat so I wouldn't, so I could go undercover at these events. And of course, wearing a hat and trench coat is a great way to go undercover, as you'll see. So let's play clip one of me on Rush Limb of the television show 31 years ago this month. Roll the tape. Animal rights movement in order to prosper, must devalue human life. Devalue the supremacy and superiority of the most brilliant creation of God in the universe, humanity. Let's go to the animal ball. Yes, part of the inaugural <laughs> celebration. No, no, wait. Part of the inaugural celebration, my friends, last night, a bunch of animal rights people got together and had a ball. An inaugural ball, Hollywood leaders, and we just have some videotape, our man in Washington. Let's roll the tape, Chet, our man at the inaugural. There he is, prepared to sneak in with comments from the attendees at the party. Listen to this. 
Can you define the term uh, animal rights? Define that. Well, I think that uh, you know it just has to do with extending humane treatment toward animals under all of the variety of uh, uh, conditions that we have. Well, I I haven't gotten that far in Al Gore's book yet. You know, <laughs> the chapter on animals. So when you say the term animal rights, what rights does that imply specifically? Well, the right to drive a car, the right to vote. <laughs> I I'm, I'm a great believer in, in freeing the animals. That's all. Freeing the animal animals? rights is the compassion and understanding that humans don't have the ability or the right to consider themselves above another living species. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that every living creature should be given its, its own rights. You know, that was Katie Lang who said that uh, humans don't have the right to consider themselves above other species. If I were Katie Lang, I'd feel that way about myself, too. Uh, <laughs> but um, there's proof. These people, folks, let's face it. That was a bunch of psychobabble. That's a bunch of people who have no idea what they're talking about, but they think they're good and wonderful people because they care about animals. And it doesn't matter what the results of that stupid rhetoric that they just enunciated happen to be. No, they care. They're compassionate. You're not. And they're better people than you. That's what it means. It's it. Wow, that was Rush Limbaugh, January 1993. And just so you know, I don't know if they actually put the names. They didn't put the names as far as I could tell. I interviewed Alec Baldwin, uh, Katie Lang, Kim Bassinger, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, otherwise known as Cassandra Peterson, uh, and Christy Brinkley. And no, that was not a joke what Christy Brinkley said. She actually said, you know, like, oh, what am I supposed to think about animals? She was at the Animal Rights Ball of the Clinton inaugural festivities. So this would be the third week of January in, in 1993. And her actual answer to me asking her about this was, I haven't gotten that far in Al Gore's book yet. Although she was just looking for like her talking points from Al Gore's book. So I thought that was very funny. Uh, I, I went to all the inaugural events. I ended up interviewing Jack Nicholson, went to a whole bunch of them. I can't find, I haven't found the videos yet of that. There's a whole treasure trove of archives of these. So I'll go through and pick out some interesting ones and we'll have flashback Limbaugh clips. But actually on the next token, the next clip is going to be uh, another segment I did for Rush Limbaugh, the television show. And I believe this is also from January, 1993. Uh, and this, let's go ahead and roll tape on this one. Clip two of me as our man in Washington on Rush Limb of the television show 31 years ago. I would like to show you something. This is funny. As you know, we've had our man in Washington throughout this entire inaugural week. And has spoken to several dignitaries of the Democratic Party and asked them various questions. Most recently, a question about me and my television show and why it isn't in Washington. Other assorted questions as well. Here is his report. Now, our man in Washington. Laugh, studio audience. It, it Washington, D.C. is the only major city where Rush Limbaugh's television show is not on. Why do you think that is? I don't really know. Maybe they have good taste. I guess the profit motive is to take somewhere, unfortunately. But the think purpose is to let as many people see it as possible, and I hope they will ultimately. He's got a very big audience, so I'm surprised he's not aired here. Would you welcome him in Washington, D.C.? Sure, I'd be glad to have him on yeah, the air. Right. Do you think Washington sort of misses that television show here? Well, they ought to have a little dose of conservatism every hundred years at least in this town. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Senator Dole. Yes, that was Senator Bob Dole. There was also Patsy Schroeder from Colorado. That was Tom Foley, the Democrat House Speaker. 
Uh, and who I can't remember who else was in that clip. Uh, but those were the these were the Democrat leaders in Washington uh, who I interviewed. And I would I would go to all the different events. I had a technique on many of these where I would stake out the restrooms because a lot of times you couldn't get the people, you couldn't get one-on-one -on -one interviews, but they always had to go to the bathroom. And the later in the evening, the better. I hope to have the clips of interviewing Clinton's spokesman, who's clearly uh, drunk. And Limbaugh would bring this up to me years later about Mike McCurry, about interviewing him. But anyway, that was a lot of fun. One more clip. This was a, the renegade Catholic priest, clip three of Rush Limbaugh, the television show. Just to give you a flavor of what was going on 31 years ago on American television. George Stallings, uh, Father George Stallings, is a reverend in the Catholic Church. He's a renegade Catholic priest, actually. Uh, here is our man in Washington interviewing him this week at the Homeless Ball at the inauguration. Here it is, the ball itself, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It looks like a heavily attended uh, ball. Why was it important to have a homeless ball? It is important that we have a homeless ball to enable elect to see that the homeless are a part of the tapestry of America. And that since our president desires to reflect the faces of America in his new administration, this is our gift to our new president. To say that while he would have desired to send invitations to the homeless to, to invite them to the various activities, and knowing that they have no homes where those invitations could have been sent, that then we have taken it upon ourselves as those who are sensitive to the needs of the homeless to create an inaugural ball so that they, as homeless, can feel a part of this, of his great uh, event and the great celebration of a new president. Shut up. <laughs> well, now, now you laugh, but let me tell you something. That's the kind of guy who takes Clinton seriously. Those are the kind of guys who think that they have finally arrived. They're out of bondage now. These guys have finally gotten out of the shackles and this administration is theirs. And that was fun. I just imagine this. Bill Clinton's elected president, the Democrat, I think it was uh, which Hollywood celebrity looked up and said, those are our planes now, our bombs, our military. And so they they act, They were so excited that they organized a homeless ball, like the homeless were going to be celebrating Bill Clinton's election. I don't know that Bill Clinton did anything for the homeless. I worked in Washington, D.C. all throughout that time, right by Union Station, and it was just full of homeless people all the time. I didn't, you know, I, I don't, I can't imagine uh, the, the idea that homeless people on the sidewalk living, freezing, uh, drug addicts, mental health are going to be like, Bill Clinton's elected, let's go celebrate. So anyway, that was just a wacky ball. And that was a fallen away Roman Catholic priest, the, the, the man we interviewed, George Stallings, who later, I think a year later on Rush Limbaugh, I interviewed the Black Jesus, where he literally burned an effigy Cross, cross images of white Jesus to then unveil the new black Jesus, which you know he claims is historically accurate. I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, just a fascinating figure. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to show you is I was uh, I saw this uh, Congressman Van Orden. Uh, I believe he's from Wisconsin. Phenomenal interview uh, about coal mining and cobalt and EVs. And I'll have some clips for you on that later in this week. And we'll do a segment on electric vehicles. I was on Stuart Varney's show on Fox News talking about what's happening now, the latest with uh, electric vehicles. And it's not pretty because even though they're collapsing and it's empowering China, a whole article in the Wall Street Journal, they're still doubling down on the failure. So I wanted to show you what 
of the, on how they're getting these EV batteries. This is Congressman Van Orden, Republican Congressman, at a Highway and Transit Subcommittee hearing. Uh, clip, I guess this would be clip, uh, clip four. Thank you, Chairman John Duarte from the great state of California. Um, Mr. Monhe, I'm going to pick up where my colleague from Minnesota left off and also where I left off talking to your boss a little bit ago. Do you understand that cobalt is a critical mineral that is used in electric vehicle batteries? Yes, sir. Do you understand that 4.3% of these batteries are comprised of cobalt? That sounds right, sir. Do you understand that 70% of the world's cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yes, sir. Do you understand that 15 to 30% of the mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo are called artesian mines? Yes, sir. Do you understand that these artesian mines have thousands of children working in the condition of essentially slavery, mining cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yes, sir. You do. Okay. Does the Biden administration still insist on having 50% of all of the vehicles manufactured in the United States by 2030 be electric? Sir, uh, Congress sent a very clear signal in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act that we needed to move much more of this uh, materials uh, onshoring, nearshoring. Uh, the bill includes $7 billion uh, for EV. I'm going to interrupt you because that's not the question I asked you. I asked you a very specific question. Does the Biden administration still want 50% of the vehicles produced in the United States of America to be EVs by 2030, yes or no? Yes. Okay. What year is it now, sir? 2023, sir. Okay, almost 2024. So that gives us, what, six years to meet this goal? That's All right. right. We're giving approximately 75, up to $7,500 per electric vehicle, correct? Tax credits and all that stuff? That's correct. And, and it is now income-based with the IIJA. That's right. There's an okay. income limit. So de facto, this is not a political statement. The United States government is subsidizing child slavery in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Incredible, incredible line of questioning. And what you need to understand is Africa, China is buying up Africa. And if I was an African leader, and I have a special report I'm working on this, would you go with the United States, an alliance and business partnership, when they send you their Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to the poorest countries in Africa, Zambia, Zaire, and, and other countries, and they also send Vice President Kamala Harris. They come and they praise Africa for essentially being primitive, for keeping their carbon footprint low, for living a lifestyle that's conducive with, with a good steward of the earth and not turning to fossil fuels. Meanwhile, China comes in and they'll offer them airports, infrastructure, jobs, money, re-election for their local leaders, and they will offer it for decades into the future. They'll give you huge loans, which you'll never be able to pay off. So you'll eventually be de facto a, a, a satellite state of, of China. But which one are African leaders most likely to take? The idea of white colonial masters reimposing their climate agenda 
or the idea of you know they can come in and actually become somewhat first world almost overnight with Chinese investment. Of course, they're going to be end up being subservient to China. But if you look at where they are and where they could go, I think they're going to we're going to lose to China constantly. We need to offer Africa a better partnership. This is clip two of Congressman Van Orden at this hearing, just driving the point home of where these EV battery materials are coming from. One estimate was half a million pounds of rare earth mining or in mining and materials are necessary for each electric car battery. Clip two of Congressman Van Orden at this hearing, grilling the witness. As we speak, there are children in the Democratic Republic of Congo mining cobalt with their hands so that the Biden administration can meet this unrealistic goal of 2030. That is a fact. That is a fact, sir. So do you think it is a moral imperative that the United States government try to prevent child slavery? Yes, sir. Even at the expense of your artificially created 2030 goal to have 50% of all the vehicles produced in the United States of America be electric vehicles. Sir, every extractive, every mining industry uh, has a spotty record. Whoa, whoa, when no, it stop. When it comes to no, 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 no. rights no, violations, no. including oil and gas industry, sir. Okay, Nigeria, you listen to me, mister. Myanmar. We are talking about child slavery, sir. I have three kids. And uh, guess I, what? I, I'm I, having I, my 11th people, grandchild. People, so would you want Africa your three children same, mining cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo so that you and your boss and the Biden administration can have 50% of the electric vehicles produced in the United States by 2030 be electric vehicles or not. Which this is, is not a political thing, sir. You guys are subsidizing child slavery. Do you understand that? That is not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue, an independent issue. That is a human rights issue. We, we the United States government, the executive branch of the United States government, de facto, right now, as we speak, are subsidizing child slavery. And I will have absolutely no part of that. And no one with a conscience should. I yield back. Well, I just want to give an applause. What a great, uh, powerful testimony Congressman Van Orden gave. I'd love to have him on the show one day to, to further expand on this. But he nails it. And there's so many different aspects to government telling you you can only drive one car and doing everything possible from executive orders to executive agency regulations to collusion in the banking system to corporate uh, and government banking announcing they're not going to give out car loans to people seeking gas-powered cars that we have to push back on this and not the least of which, of course, is this child labor issue and the reliance on that um, for this green agenda. So anyway, I do have two clips from Fox. I don't know that I'll get to them. So I'm going to save those for tomorrow, which will give you a bigger picture. And then I'm also going to give you the award show segment. We're going to show some clips of that on who the winners of 2023 Climate Hypocrite of the Year Award goes to. In the meantime, we're going to be back with a co independent economist, Darren Nelson. And we're going to be talking about economics and money, budgets, government, and freedom. We'll be right back on Unleashed with Mark Morano after these messages.
Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, WEF spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative. And she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. I'm CAL FIRE Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez, and normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov. TNTradio.live. Online. Online. Online streaming. Be a part of the conversation. I stream it all at work and I stream it to my phone and listen to it wherever I go. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. All right, we're joined now by independent economist Darren Nelson, uh, who works in the USA, Australia, been around the world. I met him uh, years ago working for uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts in Australia. Uh, and he will talk today. We're going to talk about fiscal, monetary, regulatory policy. First of all, welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano, uh, Darren. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Mark. All right. Well, how would you rate? Now, you're a U.S. citizen, even though you worked in Australia. But how would you rate U.S. fiscal health right now in terms of historically even, say, the last 50 years? And what would you rate as the best, say, five-year period of our fiscal health, if you could look at it? I mean, just to give you my thought, I always say Bill Clinton's second term amazed me because you had gridlock in Washington, you had a Republican Congress, we had budget surpluses, we had cheap gas prices, we had um, uh, pretty much a booming economy. Where would you ra rate this? Where are we now? I mean, we had many other crises in the past, 2008, the financial market collapse, you had the um, of course, 9-11, which increased spending. And then you had, of course, the uh, Obama's green stimulus. And then, of course, you had the COVID and all that. I guess COVID blew everything out of the water. But give us like a little just an overview of how spending by our government is gone and how that's affected us. Yeah, look, um, 
In a nutshell, the U.S. is probably the worst in the Western world. You know, <laughs> really, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I didn't know. That. It's it's consistently bad. It's consistently bad. So look, you know, you certainly, um, you know, in terms of like relative to others, you know, like you know, presidential administrations versus other presidential administrations. Um, yeah, I, I think you know the two-term Clinton period was certainly one of the better ones since, um, say, since Nixon. Uh, the, the worst of the, the two terms, um, was Obama, uh, the worst in terms of, you know, one terms actually have been the, the two most recent ones, um, Trump and Biden. Uh, now let's put that in the context that, you know, it's not just, you know, obviously Congress ultimately is the one be, you know, who, uh, are behind the purse strings, but, you know, obviously presidents play a big role in that. They, they're the ones ultimately who spend all the money and often ask for lots of money. Now, let's talk about that. Let's talk about you know, a lot of people wouldn't think Trump. You know, people think of Republicans as, you know, austere with budgets. Uh, you know, let's talk about Donald Trump. How did he end up during his term? What happened? Was it a military? Was it domestic spending? Where did all the money go? Servicing the debt? How did he become one of the biggest spenders? Um, look, I think, well, in a nutshell, I think you can probably more thank uh, Paul Ryan um, and his crew. Yeah. Um, you know, that was it. You know, so, you know, Paul Ryan and, and those sort of Republicans who were in charge as Trump came in, you know, talked a great game for eight years, you know, in opposition to Obama, you know, in terms of Obamacare and all sorts of things. But, you know, particularly with Obamacare, they had nothing in preparation as an alternative to Obamacare. And that was a big part of the problem because um, in terms of, you know, U.S. federal spending, it, as I guess a lot of people know, the, the big ticket items are, are welfare, um, but also health. Health. Sometimes people don't realize that one. They probably maybe suspect that that's one of the big ticket items, but it's, it's health and welfare that are the big problems. Um, and thus, obviously, Obamacare took an already kind of bloated health expenditure and took it to obviously even grander levels of um, bloatedness. Well, when, uh, at the end of, I guess, toward the end, after COVID, you had the CARES Act, which I believe was passed during Trump. And then I guess it was even further funded during Obama. That had to be like a nuclear bomb to spending, right? The CARES Act, the COVID relief bills, the endless money, the, the aid to the state and local governments, which gave them the incentive to keep lockdowns and COVID restrictions and the COVID emergency going. Um, you know, just, I mean... So what's your comment on that? How much would the CARES Act and all the COVID-related spending, how much of an impact did that have on, on both Biden and Trump being in the big spender category? Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, yeah. But clearly, I mean, obviously, the U.S. wasn't alone in, in doing that sort of like, you know, yeah. amazing levels of, if you like, emergency spending. Um, obviously, prior to that, you're, you know, you're talking sort of the, the 2008 um, financial meltdown. Um, but obviously, what they did in 2020, 2021 was – you know, on a much bigger scale than, you know, the bailouts, which started under um, W and then continued under Obama. But, you know, like I've been kind of looking at this with uh, a new report that's coming out later this month for the Heartland Institute, yeah. um, which I think the main point, besides the main point of I give a solution to cut the federal bu budget for the first time, really, you know, at a sustained sort of cutting level, first time ever, basically, at least since I, the statistics I have go back to 1970. So, you know, there's been no real sustained reduction in budget 
from that period onwards. You get some like little blips downwards or at least some leveling off here and there, but there's never been any, you know, significant, let's actually reduce this thing um, in, in actual terms. Because often, you know, you, you hear Republicans go, you know, we cut the budget, but no, they didn't. All they did was sometimes they slow it down a bit. They slow the growth down. So, you know, what I was looking to do in my report that's coming out soon is to actually cut, you know, actual budget down. Um, and that, you know, in a nutshell, what I do is I cut it by 50 percent, um, you know, by 2038. So that's over essentially three presidential terms over the next three presidential terms. It, it cuts it down back to 2008 levels. Um, so, you know, and, and the reason I do that is, I guess, you know, we, you talked about these various things, the CARES Act or, you know, the bailouts in 2020 or the bailouts in 2008. But I mean, look. Those aren't great, that's for sure. But they have a structural problem in that they never reduce spending, yeah. right? Now, strangely enough, you can often find at the state level, even blue states who will be, you know, relative to the federal government, who will be actually fiscally responsible relative to the federal government, which is not a very, you know, high bar. Um, so the federal spending has been kind of a bit of a bipartisan problem for, like I said, at least since 1970. Um, so that's quite a long time. Um, and now, you know, we're getting to a point where they can't kick the can down the road anymore. Yeah, it's amazing. So when you say cut it in half by, I think you said 2030 and go back to 2008 levels, that's uh, adjusted. That's not adjusted. I mean, that's actual the actual actual amount of money spent in 2008. Or you mean like percent of the economy adjusted or how do you mean that? Like, just explain that a little I'm more literally... because there's so many budgetary confusion. You're right. I mean, and let's face it, a lot of my economist colleagues add to the confusion and this kind of sophistry about these sorts of things. No, I mean, literally, you know, taking Same. it from like about eight trillion and taking it to four trillion. You know, the, wow. that, that's what we're talking about. Not, not a, a relative. Um, I mean, I use a mechanism called CPI minus X, which actually, you know, if you like, on the one hand, gives them, you know, some inf an inflation adjustment up. But this this minus X factor is basically based on benchmarking of the federal government, benchmarking of the state governments, but also benchmarking of, of, of some OECD countries. So it's kind of taking these objective benchmarks, which are basically, when did you ever get any cuts in your history since 1970? And these factor into create an X factor that ends up being bigger than the CPI, which is why you actually get go from like 8 trillion in 2025 down to four trillion in 2038. Well, I mean, let's so that, go. I mean, it's money you can actually give back. You know, like the, these other fancy ways of doing it. You know, it's not really giving any money back. This then ends up um, resulting in twenty thousand dollars per taxpayer that you can give back every year from 2025 to 2038 potentially. Well, if you and Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, his whole premise was to cut spending. Now, he had a problem in that in 1981, when he got elected, he had Casper Weinberger as his defense secretary, and then he had David Stockman as his Office of Management and Budget. There was actually some kind of, and I don't remember the exact amount at the time, but it was significant errors. And it ended up that defense spending increased substantially, and the promised budget cuts that Reagan tried to do, you know, along with his tax cuts, it's originally, I guess, a 30% individual tax cut, which was dropped at 25% in the compromise. They ended up just, the cuts never really came. And so we ended up with, I said, you could say permanent deficits that were escalated during Reagan's term. And just as an aside, let's go back to the 1980s, if you remember, 
Deficits don't matter. You heard many supply siders say that. Jack Kemp was one of the big ones. Uh, you had, uh, I think Arthur Laffer would have argued, or Arthur Laffer would have argued, if you get spending under control, the deficits will take, the tax cuts will take care of it. Supply side economics. Did that work? How bad were those deficits that Reagan theoretically created by not cutting the spending in 1981? And the last, well, I'll ask you another question about that because it goes to whether you can actually cut spending and your plan, but go ahead. Uh, do deficits matter? Um, yeah, they, they do, but it's it's more of an indicator of, of a problem. So really, it's the spending, really, is, is what's driving things. So like at times, like at the States and, you know, our, our um, I believe he's a mutual friend of ours, Dan Mitchell. Um, yes. He, he's, you know, he, he's, he's great on obviously fiscal matters. And he's examined, um, you know, he kind of looked at the balanced budget amendments um, at state level. And at the end of the day, they've ended up being counterproductive. So, you know, that's that, that's a concept of like, you know, if you thought deficits was the big thing, well, hey, we need a balanced right. budget. Now, I'm not suggesting deficits are not an issue, but it, but it's a sign of something. It's usually a sign you're spending too much money, right? Yeah. Um, of course, look, there's the revenue side and the taxes. But, you know, if you get spending under control, um, then that does actually lead to deficits, if you like, taking care of themselves and also the ability. And then usually, you, you know, obviously your deficits, you end up borrowing money. That's a problem in itself, you know, then you obviously add an interest expense to your budget item or one that keeps on getting bigger than what would be a reasonable level. But but here's another factor that people often don't realize is particularly in, in recent years, and probably since 2008 in particular, um, they're not, they don't really raise taxes in response to this. Um, obviously, that would not be a good thing to raise taxes, but in many ways worse, what they do, they just print money. Um, so. Basically, that's what inflation is at the end of the day, is printing money. So these deficits, um, well, the spending that they don't get under control, the the lack of the revenue matching it is these deficits, and then they borrow money. But the thing is, you know, they, they have this complex mechanism between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve to essentially print money and then launder it through the Treasury back to the government. Um, yeah. Because, you know. In the past, they were printing money, and a lot of it ended up into the private sector. Now, that still can turn into inflation, but it, you know, if your private sector is productive and 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 all that, it, it's less of a inflationary force. Now, printing money is never a good thing, but at least if it's off in the private sector, it's causing less damage than if it just goes right to the treasury, and then that goes into well, you know, more welfare spending. Um, and when I say more welfare spending, let's not forget a huge chunk of the welfare spending is corporate welfare as well. So subsidies, favored industries like renewable renewable energy, as you well know. All right, uh, let's go back to one more time, 1980s. David Stockman, after his time as Office of Management and Budget, wrote a book, and I can't remember the name of the book at the moment. But in the book, he basically said, I couldn't cut spending. Congress wouldn't go along, you know, on domestic spending. We're not talking about military spending. But he said we couldn't go along with it because basically the American people want a welfare state. The American people want subsidies. The American people want government aid. And it just wasn't going to happen. So we could not fulfill Ronald Reagan's promises. And Congress wasn't going to go along because the people wouldn't go along. What's your view of that sort of take on it? Like when you propose your 50% cut in federal spending, do you think there's going to be blowback? I mean, are you talking about cutting people who are people who people, generations have grown up in the welfare state? Generations want government aid. How do you deal with that factor? Look, that, that's still that's still an issue. But um, because the times have become, you know, because the, the times are different than 1980. Now, 
I think there's still, you know, there's still going to be pushback, definitely, um, from, you know, voters who also, you know, believe that the welfare state, despite all the evidence against it, yeah. you know, it, it, she doesn't really help people. It actually creates a, a permanent underclass for the most part um, in terms of, you know, people welfare and family welfare. Um, corporate welfare should be a lot easier thing to to tackle. Um, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot of people who who openly support yeah. corporate welfare. Um, so, you know, look, but the way mine the way I approach mine, it's it's based on and data, and also it gives everybody a haircut. So throughout the whole federal agent uh, government agencies, it gives everybody a haircut. Now that haircut varies in ten different ways because it has there's, you know, basically the statistics that I got doesn't go down to the agency level. It only goes get down to ten policy levels, but that's pretty good. You know, that's pretty granular. So you know, interesting enough, uh, the model um, gives welfare um kind of the mid-level cut right um defense gets the lowest cut uh but interesting enough defense for you know a lot of people don't know this and i i probably didn't either when i kind of first started to look at this um the statistics on defense like say in 1970 the defense budget was like about a third of the entire federal budget now nowadays it's actually 10 percent. you know so you know compared to welfare it's it's quite small if you like um, so, and then, and it, then basically in my model, uh, the stuff that gets the biggest haircut is actually the corporate welfare, you know, um, that gets the biggest cut. And I think you get the least pushback, um, but it also gives the potential to put in place better practices on, and instead of having these ridiculous political standoffs every year, um, you know, the shutdowns and all that sort of stuff, threats of shutdowns. I mean, they don't really happen, obviously, um, it puts in place you know, the potential to have a more me mechanical sort of exercise. And then, you know, as this, you know, if they were to pass it, um, you know, my CPI minus X approach, it becomes mechanical, you know, like the agencies just have to meet it. Um, they can decide within their their pot of money they get what they cut and don't cut as long as they meet the target, right? Um, and there's so much fat in every policy area. Um, you know, really there's potential for, you know, like the, the most vulnerable are not going to get, don't have to be hit by this, if you like. Uh, so look, uh, you hear about modern monetary theory. I think you alluded to something, you didn't use that phrase, but the idea of printing money and, you know, I guess the you don't, how has that affected us? The idea of printing money instead of raising money through taxes. So it creates inflationary cycle, but explain how, what modern monetary theory basically is, how it's infected our budget and, and economic cycles, and what you, what can you can do to put a stranglehold on the concept? <laughs> yeah, look, um, modern monetary theory, yeah, it certainly um, takes things to, to new scary levels. I mean, because I believe, you know, some of the people in the Federal Reserve at the moment and the Treasury um, are, you know, devotees of MMT. Now, to what extent they really believe it, you know, I don't know, but, you know, it certainly gives them an excuse um, to print money. Um, and, you know, a lot of that money ends up, uh, as I said, in, in corporate welfare, for instance. Um, it also helps to, you know, prop up some of their buddies on, on Wall Street and, and elsewhere. So, I mean, essentially, it, it comes up with this um, pseudo sophisticated excuse for printing money. And that's not a problem, basically. Um, they, you know, they, they basically get around, uh, I think they base it on this concept of like, well, look, you know, governments, you know, the currency is government's currency, right? So 
you, you know, really inflation isn't a problem because it's our currency at the end of the day. Um, now, well, the U.S. government actually is in a, a somewhat unique position compared to the rest of the Western world. Um, I mean, obviously, every country in the Western world has governments and central banks and, and their currencies are, you know, in some respects, you know, created in the same way, printed in the same way. Um, but the U.S. is obviously, since World War II, has become the world's reserve currency. So what does that mean? So basically, they can print a whole bunch of money and they can push the pain of inflation around the world, right? It doesn't all hit the U.S. all at once um, like it would, you know, say in Australia or Canada, right? Whereas, you know, so a lot of these U.S. dollars are floating around the world. They're in the hands of the Chinese or the Russians or the Europeans or, or whatnot. Um, now, you know, that just kind of spreads the pain around. But, I mean, that brings along different forces of, you know, obviously, you've heard the stories about China, et cetera, just not being happy with this, you know? <laughs> they're holding the U.S. dollars and it's, you know, and we're just pushing down the value of these things. Um, so, you know, look, it, it, it certainly may, maybe pushes the doomsday off a little bit longer um, in the U.S.'s case. Um, but, you know, that sort of economic doomsday is going to come unless something changes. All right. We're talking to economist Darren Nelson. And this is Unleashed with Mark Morano. When we come back, we're going to talk about how the state of Maine shows us how to reduce spending and lessons from Australia on some of Darren's work on his proposal to cut spending. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We'll be right back after these messages. I said, could she die? And the doctor said she could. It was so scary. When I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe and I thought, you know, what are we going to do if I die here? <laughs> How's everyone going to go on? When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor service and help save lives in the bush. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The truth is, Parkinson's disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. Worldwide, over 10 million people are living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement. And with so many places to search for information, it can be difficult to know where to begin. The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care, give you tips for living a better life, share the latest research, help you find local support, and there's a free helpline you can call. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org or call 1-800-4PD-INFO. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives together. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. We're here talking with economist Darren Nelson. 
Okay, one of the things you were working on, you, you had an article out saying that Maine shows the way to reduce spending. What's going on in the state of Maine? I thought it was, uh, you know, you called it, un, uh, I thought Maine was a, uh, a terrible example for the world, whether you're talking lockdowns or a whole lot of other outrageous policies. But why is the state of Maine showing us a way to reduce spending? Well, um, I'll have, I'll have to sort of caveat it. It it, um, it shows the potential way, basically. So um, okay. what I did is I did some work for the um, the Maine Policy Institute last year. And so the stuff we've been talking about on the federal budget, federal budget that I got those ideas from the work I did for Maine. Um, so in the lead up to the election cycle, um, you know, I did this, um, came up with this CPI minus X approach for for cutting the budget in the, in the context of the Maine state budget. And the, the, at the time, uh, you know, the, the polls were fairly even, you know, in terms of, you know, whether the Republican or the Democrat was going to win the governorship. Um, and uh, LePage was, was the Republican candidate, and he was actually governor um, for two terms previously, and he actually did some pretty good stuff on spending. So he was even keen to go further than what he did before. So this is how we kind of came up with this idea. All right, well, let's really cut this thing. So I'm suggesting a 50% cut you know, with a federal um, budget over like a, you know, three presidential terms, whereas, you know, what we came up with was, um, you know, something we gave him kind of an option between, I think it was between sort of 20 and 30% over one governor period, you know, four years, essentially. And he was keen on it. But unfortunately, he didn't win the election in Maine. So, but look, you know, we came up with a great thing they can use, you know, obviously, There'll be another chance, um, and it won't be LePage again. But you know, hopefully, we'll get a, you know, Maine will get a, another Republican who's keen to do something about state expenditure. Remember, this is in the context of the states actually, compared to the feds, are actually largely not too bad at times, right? Um, and Maine, being a purple state, sometimes they're not too bad. Now, you know, the most the current um, governor who who's in her second term, yeah, she's been pretty bad on spending, but even she looks kind of good compared to the federal government, even when it's under a Republican. Um, so it's basically the same approach, this, this CPI minus X. And, and again, you know, there's a CPI, which people are kind of familiar with this as, you know, it's an indicator of inflation, essentially. Um, it's not inflation as such, but it's indicator. Um, and, and the minus X was was done, you know, similar sort of way. It was based on, you know, what, what did the main government achieve in the past in terms of cuts? And also what did the New England states around it, you know, which um, achieve in cuts? New Hampshire is a pretty good state. Um, Massachusetts is a pretty bad state, for instance. And then it also took some of the other 50 states as well. And that kind of fed, fed into its X factors. And then we came up with some, you know, like three options of, of cuts um, that were, you know, fairly doable in Maine. Well, all right. and then you also said that the, uh, if we can fix America's crumbling infrastructure with lessons from Australia, which of course you have a lot of experience with Australia, having worked for Senator Malcolm Roberts, a great Australian senator, just want to make an observation. When I travel through Europe, even Middle East, Africa, South America, always amazed at how much cleaner, nicer, particularly the train stations are. Now, U.S. airports are, are coming along, like National Airport, Washington, D.C. has been renovated. It looks top-notch. Dulles has always been pretty good. Some of the other airports get just, they just don't look as nice as European ones, particularly. America, that's a, a small example, obviously, of infrastructure, because then you're dealing with roads and bridges. But America does seem to be behind. And it seems like every presidential administration brags about how they're going to fix uh, infrastructure in America. 
How bad is it? And what can we learn from Australia and how can we fix it? Yeah, look, that, look, that, that's a great point. Um, I, I love airports. I've done sort of, you know, I've done infrastructure work, particularly in the 2000s. I used to do heaps of infrastructure related work um, and particularly with airports. And I, I just kind of love airports for whatever reason. So I, I've had so I kind of know it from the data, et cetera. But also as someone who's a, you know, a consumer of airports, I, I totally agree. In a nutshell, uh, America, when it comes to infrastructure, takes a socialist approach. That's that's the problem in a nutshell. It's it's government owned. It's it's heavily government regulated. So even when it's not government owned, it's heavily government regulated. In terms of airports, they're almost all government owned, right? They're they're owned by the local government, but then they're regulated by the feds. So the so you get even this r ridiculous disconnect that it, you know at least if the owner was the one regulating it and vice versa, but but it's not. So. What happened in Australia, for instance, um, you know, um, infrastructure in the 90s and into the 2000s is essentially they did two things. Um, they they basically got rid of a lot of the monopoly protections for infrastructure, like up for airports, um, and they privatized it, <laughs> essentially. Wow. So they, just, they, you know, they sold it to the private sector. Um, and the Australian airports, uh, you know, you probably remember seeing some of them, you know, they're they're great. You know, they, they look good. They're they're, you know, sort of customer and passenger responsive, all that sort of stuff. Um, and and by the way, that's what Europe did, too. Um, UK and continental Europe, you know, people, you know, Americans always think of Europeans as quite socialistic. And, and sometimes they are on some fronts, but not on infrastructure. They're not um, not on aviation. They're not. So, I mean, that's that's a nutshell. So Australia did this great program in the mid-90s to mid-2000s called National Competition Policy. But it's basically aimed at air, um, sorry, aimed at infrastructure, um, just freeing them up to competition um, and freeing them up to, you know, uh, private ownership. And um, and they did this, you know, I'm not a fan of obviously government spending money on stuff, but they spent like, you know, compared to what governments spend money on, they spent this kind of minuscule amount of money just to incentivize these reforms for people to do these reforms within the federal government, within the state and local governments in Australia, you know, they spent, you know, I have the figures in, in my paper, but you know, something like they spent like a hundred million or something like that. And they got like a hundred fold return in terms of extra GDP growth out of just freeing up infrastructure. And, you know, that just fed into the entire economy. Um, you know, it was a great, great program. And Australia being a federal system, you could pretty much copy that. You could you could grab their legislation, um, you know, just you know, replace the word Australia with the United States of America and make a few other little adjustments. Now, the politics is not easy, um, but, you know, in terms of, you know, you already have something you can grab off the shelf. Um, then you, you know, obviously will need to sell it to the American people, which is obviously the hard part. But, you know, at least it's already sitting there and you don't have to worry about the administrative and the logistics side of things. Well, so, again, when I look, how do you get a multi-year fiscal spending restraint through multiple Congresses, multiple presidential terms? How do you just get it? Because wouldn't the first emergency, a COVID, a terrorist attack, whatever, wouldn't that, that just seems to be the way they they use those events to, as an excuse to just blow up any rules, limits, and they can just spend as freely as they want. And, and also the financial collapse would be another example. How do you make a multi-decade spending cut sort of resistant to 
the tricks that are going to be played. And what I mean by tricks is either real or imagined crisis crises being used to just blow through any limits, rules that uh, previous Congresses or presidents have advocated for. Look, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. That's 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 obviously going to be the difficult part. So, but I mean, there's one thing. Once you put something in place, um, obviously it's hard to get rid of it. So, you know, usually that's bad stuff is put in place and it's hard to get rid of. But you know, this in this case, you put something good in place. So, but right away in my scheme, um, you you have basically taxpayers from year one starting to get, you know, if you like tax checks back. Um, and but also at the same time you're sort of reducing the debt. So when someone's going to come during a crisis um, and sort of you know try to you know reverse it or whatnot, um, it's going to be harder for them to to sell that basically you know to to voters um, because they're you know they're, they're seeing the benefits of of cutting the budget. Um, it won't be just you know obviously it's the the tax checks it's it's the debt being reduced. They're also going to see. Hopefully, over time, before the next crisis, have, they'll see how. Oh, well, when government gets smaller, the private sector gets bigger. So it's not just my tax checks coming back. Oh, there's more jobs. Oh, wait, these jobs are better jobs. Um, you know, yeah. Sort of society starts getting better. It's going to be harder to sell the let's spend a lot of money. You know, because government we know best. When if there's enough time, they can sh you can kind of show that. Whoa. Oh yeah, government doesn't know best. This country was founded on that idea, you know. So, look, it's always a danger, but I think you know, with the sweeteners of tax checks, um, the the extra growth you're going to get get in the economy, that should at least make it harder. Um, and also, at the end of the day, okay, um, the budget starts getting in a much better position. So hopefully, if they do pass some emergency measure, it's it's much smaller and it doesn't really you know hurt the bottom line as much. Well, then you have, of course, things like lockdowns, COVID lockdowns, which, again, were never part of any pandemic plan. They were part of the pandemic planning by things like the Rockefeller and the World Economic Forum and Johns Hopkins. But if you recall, during the height of COVID, there were shutting down business. And the whole idea was you were a virtuous person and a grandma saving your grandma if you supported businesses being closed longer and longer and longer and schools, of course, closed and all that. But... What was funny is that every time they have a talk about a budget cut, if if anyone talks about shutting the government down for even what, like 24 hours or 72 hours, horror, people won't get their checks, the whole system will collapse. You can shut down an entire economy for years, months on end, certainly, and talk about it for years and ban on interstate travel, like which the Biden administration was talking about at one point. How do you get that? that mindset. I mean, these are the people in charge of us, whether they're in the bureaucracy, whether they're in the cabinet agency, most of the presidency, they view a government lockdown, a government sh shutdown with a budget deal as the most horrific thing. And they were cheering on as long as possible business and private sector lockdowns. So how do you deal with that kind of mindset? I mean, because to me, it seems as though this is, you know, we've, we've crossed a tipping point to use the climate people's phrase. That just liberty, freedom, and limited government are pretty much out the window for our lifetimes. I don't know, unless there's some kind of major change. I hate to end that on a, a pessimistic note, but you have about a minute to respond to that. Why are you optimistic you can do any of this is basically my question. Um, in a nutshell, because they did it, and I think they, they turned off enough people in the middle that maybe we have a better shot at this not happening again. Um, so that's it, because people have experienced it. I don't think they want to experience it again. 
Um, even though the, the kind of the liberals around my neighborhood used to love wearing their masks, this time around, they're not wearing the masks anymore. So well, that's a good point. I think basically we have to learn. Sadly, people have to learn from the bad before they actually will do something. So I think that's that's the good side of 2020 and 2021. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been economist Darren Nelson. Check out his work, heartland.org. He's got a, a, a report out, Make Competition Great Again. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. See you tomorrow.